Welcome to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. Join us as we share our favorite RPGs, one-shot games, tabletop games, reviews, and convention panels. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hi, this is Kelly, a.k.a. Trixie from Ragnarok and Roll, assigned to Ragnarok Story, and Tilda Wimblewick from D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition. First off, I would just like to say thank you to everyone for listening to our varied adventures, as well as for rating us on iTunes and RPGpodcast.com. If you haven't rated us yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon, a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts, as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for being up, I mean, relatively early for the convention and uh, coming to join us to talk about why some movies end up becoming classics even though they weren't successful upon their initial release. So, uh, just a real quick introduction. My name is Brian Haas. Uh, I've been a film critic for nearly 30 years at this point. Um, I am a screenwriter, a filmmaker. Um, I've done piecemeal stuff for lots of different publications that have gone out of business over the years. So, um, and uh, I uh, also program uh, films for Majestic and Phoenix. I've done stuff at The Loft as well. The Loft is incredible in the realm of like indie film. Um, movie theaters like it's it's almost unprecedented so anyways that's who I am hello everybody okay Wolf Forest local writer artist and former filmmaker and a uh, long time denizen of Tuscan and uh, I've done my own fair share of film criticism and I, I'm really excited to get to some of the nuts and bolts of this panel so I'm Scott Plunner. I'm one of the people that programmed Tuscan, so I decided that this panel would be a really interesting one, and I wanted to put myself on it. <laughs> it's one of the great things about being the programmer, right? Yes. Like, that's interesting. I'm going to do that. Uh, my name is John Horner Jacobs. I'm a novelist and screenwriter. I have um, 11 published works. My fiction has appeared in... Um, Playboy Magazine, and Southwest Review, and Cemetery Dance, and I've uh, had articles on Huffington Post, and um, in Fangoria Magazine, and um, so I, I'm a horror guy, mostly. But um, yeah, I'm excited to be on the panel. Though I don't know if I, I was thinking about it, I was like, I don't really know if I have any cogent thoughts about this subject. But <laughs> oh, I have all sorts of ideas about this. <laughs> this is one first of fasc- all, it fascinates is- me to no end. So. <laughs> First of all, it's Saturday morning. Do you have cogent thoughts? Yes. <laughs> all right. Okay. Sunday. Sunday morning. Sunday. You don't know. Oh, see? <laughs> you got con brain. You don't know what time you don't even you know what time it is. Or anything. Thought is You're just like, thought, I think I'm know? supposed to show up right now. So, um, Yeah, I, I absolutely love this idea, right? And there are definitely movies. There's movies right now that I think are getting released that I think will be classics at some point. Uh, There's a movie called Spontaneous that I think is brilliant that came out in the last two years that uh, really effectively talks about, um, you know, uh, issues for, like, teenage kids. And, like, it sort of deals with, like, school shootings in a roundabout way, but the premise is, like, the kids start blowing up and they don't know why. And... Nobody can give them answers, and everybody's just kind of like, well, we're doing our best, you know? Um, and it's something that I think is going to really resonate down the line when people kind of find it. It has a real Heather's feel to it, which is another movie that <laughs> was not successful upon its initial release, and now everybody loves Heather's. I mean, it's a, it's a classic. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the intelligence of the writing, usually, for these movies, because, you know these big flashbang I like those movies don't get me wrong I'm going to go see Wakanda Forever um, like later tonight when I get home probably um, and they certainly have their place but like ultimately we're you know those will be like just oh yeah it's a nice like pop culture thing or whatever but um, something like Blade Runner that just completely changes the way we think about a lot of different um, aspects of filmmaking 
and uh, how like uh, resonant it was for the way things are now. Like that's Blade Runner's what things look like now. You know, um, we don't have the flying cars yet, but like largely a lot of the aesthetics. And it was like it was a huge flop when it came out. Like they were just like, you know, I, people got fired over Blade Runner, and you know now it's like certified so good that it has a sequel that I think the same thing is happening to. Like people didn't really go see Blade Runner 2049, and it's brilliant. You know, I think it might be better than the original, to be honest with you. Uh, you know, people will catch up to that because I think you know there's that real intelligence to the writing and like it, just characters that grip you. Um, I mean, those are some of the things that I think just sort of make these really memorable experiences where it just gets passed on word of mouth and eventually people just catch on. And the original Blade Runner was set three years ago. <laughs> I know, right? Where's the flying cars? Where's the flying cars? <laughs> well, I think um, that Blade Runner is a perfect example. I think one of the reasons why it might have, uh, whenever you mix genres, it poses a real conundrum to how to market it to mm -hmm. people and get the, get the, like, is it a science fiction? Do we play up the noir aspects? Do we play up the science fiction part? And people are like, well, it's it's sci-fi, but it's like a detective, yeah. you know, and people just, at, at the time, weren't, you know, really, yeah. yeah. The, the idea of, like, melding um, different sort of genres like that, like, seamlessly, wasn't really a thing yet, you know? Mm -hmm. Not in the way it is now, where you're just like, here's a high concept, you know, piece, and they're just like, oh yeah, okay, fine, I buy that. There's two Earths that sit like this close to one another. It's all about classism and stuff like that. Yep, fine, buy it. Well, totally. almost um, one of the things that the cult movie needs is for you is for the movie to do something on a genre that's completely unexpected, like Heather's. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, Heather's is done pretty much in the middle of all of the, you know, Hughes team movies. Mm -hmm. And if you go into Heather's expecting that, ooh. You're about to get your, your teeth kicked in, you know? And you probably deserve it, because you need it, probably. Yeah. yeah. Well, my first experience with a, with a film that didn't do well when it came out and yet became a classic was The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was made in 1939, which many people say was the best year for film ever, because you can go down the the list of films that came out that year, and it said, did it get lost in the shuffle? The fact that Victor Fleming, who directed The Wizard of Oz, was one of four directors, the last the last one he also did Gone with the Wind, and, and all that, but it did not it did not make a lot of money until the mid-1950s, when my generation were, were just entering school, and we saw it on TV for the first time, it was always on Thanksgiving weekend, because they know the kids had four days off, and so you always, I, I always associate it with Thanksgiving, and I never got to see The Wizard of Oz on a big screen for probably 15 years later, and it was like seeing the movie for the first time. It's like if you could, if you as a kid, you'd be captivated by something. Back then, very few people had color TVs, so the whole Oz section was kind of lost on us, you know. I, and I saw it, you know. On a big screen, go. It's in color. Well, I knew it was in color, but I'd never seen it, and it was still like, uh, you know, it was a quantum leap over what I was even expecting. The color parts were a gimmick too to separate it from what television was, largely for why he was right. saying because most people had black and white, and that part's yeah. just lost. Yeah, which and makes me think of on the on the initial release, the whole movie was black and white, yeah. which might be part of the reason why it didn't really resonate as much, mm -hmm. um, and. Um, I really, there's a lot of those that, you know, like another generation just finds it later and they're like, wow, like, where's this just, like, it, it, I mean, it was like, it did okay, you know, like, I wouldn't say that, like, it was like a, a huge flop or anything, but, like, nobody was, like, happy about what The Wizard of Oz did, and then it came out, like you said, about 49.50, again, on re-releases, which was a big thing um, back then, uh, and it just, like, completely enamored a whole generation, and now... I mean, everybody thinks it's a classic. That, that means so that it, it, the, the way it's presented to the, the, the audience makes a difference of whether or not it's an initial success. Because yeah, uh, not, not they can make a big difference and then, then it can catch on because the effect is truly seen. Well, I got like a good example of something that's sort of the opposite of that, like idiocracy, right? Which, like, how did that not get a, like a wide theatrical release, right? Mike Judge is maybe the best satirist that we have living today. 
uh, that guy gets it. That guy just gets it. Um, and he's not mean about it, too. That's the thing that I really appreciate appreciate about Mike Judge. He's just showing you, and it's like, it's ugly, and, you know, like, we need to sort of address some of those things, but, like, it was, I think it was largely because they saw it was a comedy, but, it, like, it's got a real political bent to it, and they were just like, how do we market this? And they were just like, maybe we just don't. And they, it, like, it got dumped in a couple of dollar theaters, you know, because they didn't know what to do. They were, and it, they had, like, a theatrical contract with Mike Judge, because it was after Beavis and Butthead or something like that. And he's like, no, it has to play in theaters. And they're like, okay, well, we'll put it in, like, $200 theaters. And then it largely disappeared, and then all of a sudden, like, everybody discovered it on, you know, either um, physical media or largely through cable. Car cable, uh, I mean, that thing played every day on Comedy Central, it felt like. I, I think it's important to note um, most things recently, or most things in the past 30 years be have become classics through, um, like, VHS and DVD mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that's, like, uh, Wizard of Oz is an outlier because yep. they got the re-release, re but back then they didn't have you know home home video, mm -hmm. and that's been a huge thing that that, that uh, you know a revenue stream for the studios, but also yep. um, you know an avenue for things to become classics. <laughs> um, we recently had a had a um, conversation on a Zoom meeting I had with some friends who are screenwriters and authors. And they were they started bringing up having a tape trading back, when, oh yeah, which was a real thing. And I we used to do it with uh, you know um, uh, videotapes, but and also like computer games. Yep. And, and, mm -hmm. I'd look in the back of like Video Watchdog or yep. Fangoria, or and you'd hope that you're like dealing with somebody that's semi reputable, yeah. you know. And it's not like a seventh generation. It usually was like a seventh generation of like a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, you know. And um, but yeah, I mean. I found a lot of the horror initially because, like, I didn't live in a cool town, you know? Like, there was no cool shit where I lived, you know? And so, like, I had to seek that stuff out, and I would go to stuff like this, and somebody would be like, you have to see this movie Intruder. And I'm like, Intruder? Oh. And it's like, it's just a silly, gory, you know, like, slasher in a uh, supermarket, but the special effects are incredible. I'm like, okay, I'll look for it, you know? Can and I just, where you live? What was that? Can I ask where you lived? Yeah, I lived in central Illinois, like about 100 miles. It was like right in between Chicago and um, St. Louis, a town called Normal. I'm not making that up. <laughs> <laughs> Most people would know it because there's a university there. That's probably the only reason you would know it. Um, but, uh, yeah, like, I didn't get any, you know, we had a couple of, like, decent video stores. We had a really cool one that I supported literally until the second it died. Um, but, like... Yeah, I, I had to really search for a lot of that stuff. Um, and a lot of the foreign films were really tough to find. You know, I love the classics too. Like, I love the grindhouse exploitation stuff, but that doesn't mean I don't want to watch something like, you know, The Wizard of Oz also. Well, that was the original uh, reason why conventions had movie rooms. Mm -hmm. It's because that was the only way that you could see a lot of, yep. a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. You'd have one person who knew a lot about movies and was able to get all sorts of neat stuff and went, wow, you guys gotta see this. And of course, you know, that's before there were 4,500 streaming stations on, you know. And, well, that's and part of the reason why conventions were made is that people came to the movie room mm -hmm. with their tapes in hand yeah. and shared them in the, 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 the convention uh -huh. before uh, the um, very copyright cool. people got crazy about it. Thank God for things like YouTube where you can see really obscure, low-budget stuff that uh, when I was much younger, you know, people would recommend a film, and I was like, well, how am I going to get this? How do I find it? And it would burn like, in the back of my mind. Yeah. I would keep saying, I've got to find this movie. i got to find this movie. And now on the internet, with streaming, with DVDs and everything else, it's it, it's almost impossible not to be able to find something somewhere. Yeah. Get a bootleg copy or something, and, and yet stuff still keeps getting re-released. I'm always shocked when a low-budget film like Carnival of Souls gets the respect from Criterion and gets a Blu-ray release. You know, $100,000 movie and all of a sudden it's right up there with The Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries and all these other films. It's one of my favorite horror movies yeah, of all time. I, I, I was telling my grandchildren, I saw part of Carnival of Souls on a small TV 
in a, in a student union at a small college that I went to. And it that was might like be two worse. in the morning, and I saw part of it. What the hell is this? There's all these people with white faces yeah, running around. Yeah, it's yeah. like an early zombie movie, except they didn't eat you, you know? Yeah. And uh, another film around that same time period, uh, Carnival of Souls came out in 62, is Spider Baby. Oh, Spider Baby. I so love Jack Hill. If you've never seen Spider Baby, it, does, it defies categorization. Mm -hmm. And it's one of Lon Chaney's better last movies you know he did a lot of crap in the, in the late 60s before he died in 73 but uh, spider baby is priceless and yeah. it's gotten a blu-ray release now. yeah it's pretty easy to find out yeah a lot of these things were stuff that i looked i like put you know that note in the back of my head for 30 years and look at stuff and now i find it streaming you know which is actually great you know because like I don't want, I, it's like, I don't want somebody else to have to do what I did, right? That was really hard, you know, and it was not fun most of the time, and you got burned a lot of the time, so, like, I love the fact that it's really easy to find. I, I'm not a gatekeeper. I'm not, like, you had to go, you know, into these tape rooms and find these movies, or it's not really, you know, who cares about any of that shit, you know? I love this, I, you know, and so, and there are movies now that I'm just like, oh, man, I really wanted to watch that. You know, box art that's, like, burned in my brain forever. Um, like it's some, And it's fun sometimes because there'll be, like, a movie called The Beast Within, right? They had a great box art, right? I, was, I would look at it, but I never got the opportunity to see it, right? And then years later, it's streaming, and it's a terrible, terrible movie. I mean, it's just awful. And I'm just like... This is what I wanted to watch for 35 years. Well, the box art drew you in. Yeah, of course. The same way with American Selling Pictures. Yeah. They create the poster oh, first, yeah. then they write the script and do the movie. Yep. And 90% of the time, whatever you saw in the poster wasn't in the film, but <laughs> you can't get your money back. You know? yep. Rarely you can say, I didn't like this movie, I want my money back. So. Yeah. Um, and I think, like, um, horror specifically is really good at this because, like, we are really good at going back and, like, letting people know about, you know, like, I feel like John Carpenter's whole career post Halloween was sort of like this, where like why were nobody going to? All he did was make like ten classic movies in a row. You know, I mean, like all time classics. Um, and you know, like the thing. You know, like I, I hear him talk about the thing now. You know, he's somebody said like, how do you feel about all the success and you know the classic status of the thing now? And he's like, I mean, it's cool, but like didn't help me get movies made. You know, back in the eighties. You know, that almost derailed my whole career. You know. Um, and so um, I think that's really great um, or something like Event Horizon which didn't really do very good when it was initially released and it's one of the best it's like the best Lovecraftian space thing ever right? if you want to get space involved with it there's other Lovecraftian movies that I think are the same ballpark but like you add the element of space to it and that's something that happens a lot in Lovecraft stuff because it's where, where's the dark place and space is a dark place you know um and uh, that's sort of come around, and people just love Event Horizon now. And like, uh, we sold the screening out of it in Tempe. When like I went and saw it, and there was like three people in the movie theater on like the opening, opening Friday night or something. You know, nobody came, nobody cared. And now we're selling out movies of it. You know, twenty five, thirty, whatever it is. I don't remember exactly when it came out. Yeah, Late nineties. Talking 90s. about um, John Carpenter. Remember Dark Star, which predates yeah. Halloween. And that, you know, took years to find its audience, but now it's, it, it is you know, the poster child. It's a cult classic that would certainly fit the, all the parameters of uh, what a cult classic is. Mm -hmm. Low budget, you know, he really didn't, didn't really fit anywhere. He really didn't like to be boxed into the horror, you know, like, I think there's less of the, the sort of negative side of being labeled horror. You know, back then it was just like, horror was like, it's like you get played next to the uh, to the you know the porn houses and stuff like that, and so it's just like very looked down upon. And he made stuff like Assault on Precinct Thirteen that it's just awesome, and um, like he did a bunch of stuff that was really good. I think he did like like comedies that were pretty decent, you know. Um, but nobody wanted you know, and now it's like I think he's finally going to make another movie, but it's been like I think fifteen years since his last movie. And like somebody that's, you know, like that, and he gets to be, you know, he gets to go be a rock star now, and he's making good money. And I ain't saying uh, that he's hurting or anything. You know, every time Halloween comes out, another check magically appears in his hand. You know? <laughs> um, but like, just imagine that somebody like that can't get a movie made. It's it's 
impossible, you know, like Frank Henlotter, right? Has not been able to get a movie made for like 20 years or something like that. And I'm like, look at all these people that are crowdsourcing. I'm like, why don't we do this for okay, somebody like that? that? How many people know Frank Henlotter? Henlotter. 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 Yeah. Uncle Frank. That was a basket case. Basket case. Yeah, basket case was hysterical. Yeah, Frank and Hooker. I mean, he just, it's um, brain damage. About a slug that's, I mean, it's like an allegory for addiction, but it's a slug that controls a guy, you know, through like hypnotic sort of, and it's really gross and grimy. And because he leaned into all that stuff, the sex and the violence and all that, he loved it, you know. Um, and so, um, and he was a guy that grew up um, on like the, the drive in circuit, you know, and so you really get um, sort of influenced by those things. And he would <laughs> talk about, um, the nudity cuties and stuff where you could like kind of show nudity outside of the Hayes Code because it was for educational purposes, you know. Um, and so there's a lot of those like sun worshiper movies, you know, and they just go to nudist camps and, you know, show people like playing volleyball and shit like that. But um, how can that guy not get a movie made? I mean, you know, those are like, those are classics in my mind. I think that everybody agrees on that. Uh, certainly in the horror community, we all love Uncle Frank, and like it's just crazy to me that like you can make these things that stand the test of time, and like nobody wants to give you money to try and do it again. He's still active, you know. Well, even a mainstream director like Peter Jackson has some really interesting films in his past, like Dead Alive and Meet the Peebles, yeah. which is one of my favorites. Love it. Yeah. Meet the Peebles is like X-rated Muppets. Yep, it's hysterical. <laughs> They do drugs. They get sexually <laughs> they transmitted drugs, disease. They, do sex, they vomit on each other. They it's kill. Stuff. They kill themselves. You know, it's all. It's. I mean, you just really get that look, and uh, that's what really sort of. Um, I see those pieces in King Kong and like, and Lord of the Rings and stuff that has that same humor, and I'm just like, you were like refining that through all the you know gross stuff that you were doing but he's st and he still does it on a pretty gross level you know like those orcs are not very nice to one another in Lord of the Rings um, and uh, yeah I mean that's another you know like Guillermo del Toro can't get I mean how could he not get a movie made it's it's insane to me yeah, he, I, he's he won an Academy Award right yeah he wanted to like they told him that his um, his Creature of the Black Lagoon movie wasn't good enough for the Universal Monsters uh, reboot, so they made that abomination with Tom Cruise that was just like almost unwatchable, uh, and it deep six the whole universe that they were making. And Guillermo's like, well, I'll just go make my Creature of the Black Lagoon movie, and oh by the way, I'm gonna win the Oscar for it, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, and like finally now with Cabinet of Curiosities being so popular again on Netflix. He's, he's pushing real. He's been wanting to make in the um, in the mountains of madness for twenty five like twenty five thirty years. Like it's his dream project. He keeps yeah. trying to come back, and he he's been releasing like test footage recently because he's trying to push it again. He did the same thing with Hellboy. Hellboy took like ten years to get made, and he told Ron Perlman, he's like, you know, I'm gonna keep trying until we we do it, you know. Um, and so like if there's anybody that will like. Be persistent about it. I think Guillermo is the guy, and he's really good about giving other people opportunity. Um, so, yeah. I but you know another one who just has made classic movie after classic movie and still has trouble getting stuff financed. You know, when all the Marvel stuff, they just they can't wait to throw uh, dump trucks of money at it. You know. Well, I mean, it's this the the difference is it's like. That stuff is like McDonald's. True. And what we're talking about is like niche, yeah, you know, Asian that's, restaurant. That's true. You know, and, um, which, you know, those are the tentpole things. Yeah. You know, and they're going to put the marketing dollars behind it. That's but true. I'm, I'm curious as to like, you know, all these movies have become classics. <laughs> We've said that like, you know, they're hard to define, but is there any sort of commonality between them? Can you, can you thread any sort of rationale of like why? I think really memorable characters is one. Like, I'm looking at this list that I have here. Like, Rocky Horror is a great example of this, right? You know, and a mixture of genres, right? A little bit of horror, a little bit of, like, musical theater, you know? Um, like, um, Fight Club, um, Shawshank Redemption, um, The Room, even, you know? Like, it's memorable for the wrong reasons, but my God, is it you, memorable, you, you know? Shawshank Redemption? It's a cult classic. Well, so it was not. So here's the thing. Like everybody thinks, 
you know, again, that it's like this, and it is, everybody rightfully agrees that it's a classic now, but it didn't do very well when it came out. You know, it sort of stumbled at the box office, and they even tried to do, like, a push again at the at Oscar time because they thought they had something special, which they did, you know. It's just like we weren't quite ready for it yet, you know. And so Shawshank is uh, another good example of, like, um, HBO and TNT and, like, all the cable channels just playing it to death because they're like, it's a long movie, so, you know, we can program out a three-hour block or whatever and not have to worry about that. And uh, people just really gravitated to it because the characters are amazing and the story is amazing. And well, I mean, it's so many of these, right? Mm-hmm. I, the biggest key is how do you advertise it? I mean, what yeah. what is the elevator pitch for Shawshank Redemption? It's it's tough. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how, yeah. It's a prison movie, but not no. It's not right. one of those prison movies. It's a you know, there's it's, a guy it's a tough one to logline. Working you know? this long con that eventually leads to him escaping, and then there's the mm-hmm. funny accounting and uh, yeah. The description but, of the movie. Yeah, and it's also complicated by the fact it's like, and it's by Stephen King, but it's not horror. Right. It's not horror. <laughs> yeah. Which really messed with that. You know, people are a little more accepting of that now after the success of some of the stuff that he did that was not horror that was pretty good. But, um, like, that was a very novel concept at the time. They're like, this is Stephen King adaptation? Is there, like, ghosts in the, the prison? No, straightforward. You know, it's a, it's a prison drama. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> so I don't think the Stephen King fans were like, it doesn't sound like it, you know? So I don't know if I'm going to go see this. Um, well, it's like when Bob Dylan went electric, you know? He lost a lot of his fans. Like, how could you expand your horizons? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think helps a movie become a cult classic is that the studio abandons it. Yeah. Because for, you know, like, the reason why Wizard of Oz was shown every Thanksgiving was because it was cheap. Yeah. yeah. The light they gave very good light. The same thing with um, Have a Wonderful Life. Same thing, yeah. Um, it was, you know, not really a huge hit when it came out. Mm-hmm. And so, same thing. You know, they just like licensed it for around Thanksgiving. On, on TV, and the reason why, you know, Hogan's Heroes, Bewitched, I Dream of Genies were all just. Oh, Gilligan's Island were everywhere mm-hmm. was because it didn't cost them, you know, yep. anything to rebroadcast it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, and and again, going to a lot of these cult classics, mm-hmm. it just, you know, it was they weren't they weren't um, trying to milk everything <laughs> out of it. So people were able to discover it in their own way mm-hmm. and then just be able to keep on seeing it over and over again. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I definitely think that like the rewatchability is a huge factor for that. Like mm-hmm. f- physical media, VHS, DVD, Blu-ray. So you what, know. Have, have you heard of Americathon? No. Okay. Americathon is could have been a cult classic as well. It's 1976 is when it came out. Basically, America's poor, Mm -hmm. has absolutely nothing, and the president decides to have a telethon and sells off the U.S. (laughs) (laughs) Americathon? Americathon. Harvey Corman is the MC, and it it is hilarious. That sounds amazing. Oh, Fred Willard's in it. All right. Oh, yeah. Mm. I forgot about Fred Willard. Right. And you can buy it right on Prime. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> there we go. Cool. This gentleman has a question. Oh, yeah. Well, I was more going to mention one of the movies that I really like that make is more like topical now than it was when it was made was Demolition Man because mm. it was this, ah, oh, action, guns. With a story of political correctness and class, and it's like, where did that come from? It's like, it's more relevant now than it was then. I think a lot of the, like things that become classics, you know, also through 
you know, physical media and rentals and, and whatever, but some of them tap into the spirit of the time before it was really the spirit of the time. Mm -hmm. and it's like the, the creative people, the, usually the vision of the guy or woman who had the, the idea to make it was a little bit ahead of their time because they're sort of out of the mainstream, mm -hmm. right? And, but, but that's what make, makes it like connect with a, uh, like a subculture, a subgroup of people that sort of keep it alive. And it's usually the fandom that really sort of, you know, gets those movies to, to become classics. Um, because people keep talking about them in like small groups like us here, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, uh, so I, I think that's interesting because I've never heard of American Yeah. Like, I mean, I just watched uh, Ghost Watch. You, you know, Ghost Watch is a, a UK. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I had never seen it before and I just watched it and I was like, this is this is great. You know, this is, I can see, you know, how it, it, it scared all of Britain, you know, when it came mm -hmm. out. Um, but I had to like find it, I had to watch it on like archive.org or archive.com, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. you couldn't get it because um, of rights issues. But yeah, it's, it's you know, um, I think some of them are just, uh, like someone mentioned uh, in the thing, it says Buckaroo Banzai, which yeah. was so quirky mm -hmm. and out of the mainstream, mm -hmm. but it, it appealed to people who felt that way. Like yeah. it felt, you know, mm -hmm. they felt like a little bit out of the mainstream. And, um, you know, that's a small subset of, of of you know America, but it's enough to make it you know through repeat watching a classic. Yeah, um, and the aesthetics are so like amazing in Buckaroo Banzai, and just like the, I mean, all this all the science that they're doing is pretty nonsensical and high level, but it doesn't matter because you just buy into it. And oh my God, John Lithgow, John Big Booty, 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 Booty. Into the, like, yeah, two years later would have been like twenty. It would have been impossible to do, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. post like and Weller and yeah, post RoboCop, they couldn't have done it. You yeah, know, he would have been too big, you know. But like they got him at the right well, time. I mean, you have to, you have, Bloom, Bloom too. Yeah. You have to remember how those films were made mm -hmm. because the and I forget the name of the producer, but he basically said, "Okay, I will give you a lot of money for a ten movie contract." We will do 10 movies together. I will throw money at you. Right now, nobody thinks you're good, but I think you could be a star. And he really was good at being able to pick those people because almost all of them are currently stars. Yeah, big stars. So, yeah. Well, just like the with British, with the Monty Python crew, the, the British uh, TV studio said, here's money, here's a set, do something. <laughs> Saturday Night Live does the same thing. They they were just let loose, and were able to, to experiment on on, on live broadcast yeah. shows. That was more like was, an opportunity because of like um, the like when they're showing it and like not really caring. You know, like there was no it, when Saturday Night Live came out at ten thirty on Saturday. There was nothing. Maybe a monster movie. Maybe you know most of the TV stations would turn off. You know, pretty early. And, um, and so, like the real brilliance of Monty Python was that they took a cut and paid to get the tapes. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Because back then, the tapes oh, were they, those guys constantly. Were smart. Right? Yeah. This is why like, the, the first, what, three seasons of Doctor Who were gone forever. Right. They'll never be seen again. And why but Monty all, Python all of those really? guys had had work that went away because of that. Mm -hmm. And when they started forming it, they're like, no, we need the tapes. And they wanted to put that in their contract and the guy looked at them like why would you want to keep the tapes right and they said don't worry about it just let us have the tapes well now that's going to cost us money we'll take a cut and pay we want the tapes mm -hmm. and so they, they got the tapes in the contract which is what allowed them to rerun it to sell it in america mm -hmm. you know all right. just because they're like no we want the damn tapes and, and, and you know monty python was not really that big when it initially came out because people just again yeah it was too wacky it was, they didn't it, know what to they, they didn't, didn't there were no was. transitions people were going what is this it was very experimental, and was, that was that was very out of the ordinary. Then mm -hmm. you know there wasn't you know all these different you know Monty Python is really a trailblazer. You get to like yeah. somebody like the kids in the hall that do very similar sort of stuff, mm -hmm. 
you know, and nobody even, you know, bats an eye because, you know, there was all these other people that came before that sort of, like, blazed the trail and said, why does it have to have a narrative? Why can't it just be absurd stuff that we you want know, to throw Absurd as humor is, it, and it's, it's a hard sell in mainstream. Mm-hmm. You know, it takes a certain, you know, different kind of person to, 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 to like um, absurd as humor, yeah. But yeah, I, I'd say in a lot of ways, Monty Python was deliberately built by them to be a cult classic. They were like, this, they all I was just going to get it the first time. I think they all set themselves the up so that they would work for the rest of their careers. Yeah. I think the kids in the hall largely did the same, yeah. you know, where they're just like, hey, look, we can do any role. So, yeah. I mean, it made them so utilitarian that they're just like... And, oh, it, yeah. and actually, that brings up a really interesting point that Monty Python might be one of the really few cases where they were intentionally trying to be a cult classic. He just said that. that yeah. Well, no, no. But most of the time, if you try to be a cult classic, you fail. You fail. Right. Yeah. Usually, really badly. Usually, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Well, is there? I can't, I can't really think of something. I guess. What was that? Um, Super 8 was one of those movies mm-hmm. that tried really hard to be like, to, to get the sort of Spielbergian. Kids on bikes. Yeah, but it, it, it failed. It, yeah. it didn't work. You know. Well, then you got a film like The Eraserhead, which actually gave David Lynch, you know, a gateway into the mainstream with Elephant Man. But, uh, you know, Eraserhead, again, it's one of those films like, that's an instant cult classic because mm-hmm. it's so bizarre. Yeah, um, and like his, that's a good, you know, transition because like a lot of his stuff is, you know, rightly considered classics, but like very not mainstream. And he sort of got me into the idea. I love his, it's just like experimental film is what it is. You know, it's not meant to be narrative. You know, it's meant to uh, evoke emotions, you know, and like get responses and stuff like that. Um, and so, like, he sort of, like, really gives the opportunity to still take that. Yeah, he's pretty much retired at this point. He just likes to paint and sit at his house and, you know, like, yell at people on the Internet, which is hilarious if you haven't, like, watched it. Uh, I, I, I watched his master class. Well, we have a membership to master class. Mm-hmm. I've watched so many, like, filmmakers and authors, but his was, <laughs> it was just him sort of, like, rambling, like, like you were sitting down at a at a dinner and he had maybe a couple too many glasses of wine <laughs> and was just sort of just and so making movies are and he'll just sort of think and he'll just say something it's, yeah. it doesn't have like any gr- it's very stream of consciousness yeah. like his films are um, and so that sort of got me into like stuff like the Quay Brothers um, which is very however you say it you know, I think I've only ever read it um, but like um, you know and all the people that did these like really out there sort of wild shorts that were very influential on like filmmakers you know like just because it didn't speak to like um, like a very big audience sometimes the audience that it did speak to looked at it and went I can incorporate that in a more commercial fashion you know Um, and they just sort of like influence them and you know you see that sprinkled in with a lot of people these days that's that's really that really happens a lot in music mm-hmm. because you know you've got the Ramones Velvet Underground mm-hmm. you know they put out one two three albums but afterwards you know everything changed and in in some ways you go back and listen to them and you go well why was it so you know why 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 is it so special everything sounds like that mm-hmm. well no yeah, nothing sounded, <laughs> nothing like, that sounded like that before they sounded like that yeah it starts somewhere um and like those that's a very diy sort of just a bunch of you know bratty teenagers getting together talking about they want to sniff blue or they don't want to do this or you know whatever i love the ramones i I really kind of wish that Joey would have lived long enough to see what happened, right? He got a taste of it, right? But not like... I mean, he was on MTV. Like, he got a taste of it. A taste of it. But, like, now the Ramones are, like, you know... I mean, my God, they pop up in everything now, you know? And they're just, like, so synonymous with pop culture. Um, I talked to John Waters a little bit about this, too, you know, about, like, is it weird that all these people were so anti-you for so many years 
And now all of a sudden you're beloved and like people are taking their grandmothers to see the Hairspray musical and stuff. And he's like, you know, it's just, he's like, you stick around long enough and, you know, sometimes <laughs> people like you. Oh, you when know? Pink Flamingos becomes mainstream, I'm going to start worrying about it. Rocky Horror being played on MTV with no cuts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah. For, for Waters, actually, I think one of the big things that helps him was documentaries because there was like a five or ten year stretch there where he was one of the go-to guys for documentaries about the edge of the film industry right he knows everything that yeah, guy is so years. smart i think like the first one was was the this film not yet censored mm -hmm. they're not yet rated yeah he's talked about the, the whole censoring and rating yep. process for which of course john waters knows everything because he's resubmitted all those movies oh, yeah. a dozen times to get a rating Right. And then there were a bunch of other of those documentaries. Pink Flamingo never had a rating until yes. whatever the re-release was, and they gave it an NC-17. But like, yeah, yeah, all those years, it was just like, because yeah. he didn't care, you know? And like, yeah, my God, you talk about somebody that was lightning in a bottle and, yeah. you know, really his, exposed his to a real subset. So many aspects of the movie. Industry. And in a very positive movie. and not, he's never mean, right? Like, yeah. that's, there's all these people that do things that I think are similar to John Waters, but they're mean about it, right? John Waters is never mean about his characters. He doesn't hate his characters. He's actually quite empathetic to his characters. Well, uh, another interesting masterclass. Mm -hmm. I haven't watched that. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just think there's like this real positivity to like all of John Waters' work, you know, even like his, even Pink Flamingos, where the whole idea is like, I want to be the most offensive person on earth, you know, and people fight over being the most offensive person on earth. Um, and I mean, plus, you know, he had Divine, so Divine was special. Uh, Divine's another one that I wish could have sort of seen what happened afterwards I'll bet they would have been couldn't have even believed what happened with hairspray I'll bet I'll bet yeah nobody saw that no nobody saw it. John Travolta oh, yeah. <laughs> it's wild the whole thing is wild um, well what I also want to open it up to you guys because I, lo I love interaction and you guys definitely uh, I'm sure have some thoughts on this as well we can continue to talk about this for another you know 20 minutes or whatever but what do you guys think anybody well you hit all the ones that I was thinking about <laughs> well I'd like to bring up another director yeah. that maybe not a lot of people have heard of but I think he's brilliant it's Richard Stanley he did a science fiction film in 1993 called Hardware, which I'm not even going to try to attempt to describe to you, but I think it's brilliant. He also did a film which is kind of a slasher, drifter, road movie called Dust Devil. Dust Devil, yeah. Which is set in South Africa, I think, or somewhere. somewhere the out, or the Outback? Or out, maybe maybe, maybe, it, is so, South, maybe it is South Africa. Africa. Anyway, yeah. that, that I love. I would recommend it highly. And the only mainstream opportunity he's really gotten, and again, he's like... Uh, um, Guillermo del Toro, mm -hmm. where it's like someone of his talent should be getting more opportunities, but uh, he hasn't done anything in quite a while. And the only mainstream thing he did, which turned out to be a disaster because of so much studio interference, was a remake of Island of Dr. Moreau yeah. in the late 90s. Um, there's, a, there's a documentary called, I think it's called Lost Souls, um, the making of Island of Dr. Moreau, that's absolutely fascinating. He is a really interesting person. Um, apparently there was some stuff behind the scenes, um, some icky stuff that's part of the reason why he hasn't worked in a long time. Um, but um, Icky stuff? Yeah, yeah, some not, not so great stuff. Um, but um, yeah, definitely, um, he has like an aesthetic to his work as well. Um, there's definitely a work. He did do The Color Out of Space mm, two or three years ago. Yeah. Um, which is really good. Um, has Nick Cage right, yeah. um, versus you know in the whatever you want to call it the reconnaissance of Nick Cage. Um, we love to like tear our heroes down, and then we love to build them back up again. I was so happy when the unbearable weight of the first studio movie in twenty years or something like it was incredible. I couldn't believe it. I'm like this guy that's made billions and billions of and no, they just your yesterday's news now. Yeah. But that gave him the opportunity to like 
take some real opportunities and chances. And he made some real crap during that time. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Um, but like Pig is maybe the best thing he ever did. Yeah, Pig is so such a great movie. That yeah. is a classic. It's like yeah. there's there was a scene um, in a restaurant where he's talking to a guy and talking to him about his dreams. And he's like, you only get really one opportunity for your dreams. And you, you know, like, why are you not doing what you were dreaming about? Why are you doing this other thing that's yeah, it is successful or whatever, but why are you doing that? You know, you had a dream of like something simple that sounded really great and you just gave that up, you know, for success. You well, know. the great thing about, I, I, I love about that movie because it's a Nick Cage movie, so you expect there to be like violence or something. Oh, yeah. So when he's going to the restaurant, he's going to get this information where, like, because he wants his pig back because he loves his pig. Yeah. And you think, you know, they sort of set it up where you think like he's going to like hurt somebody or right. whatever. But I mean, he does. But all he does, is he just does it through words. He, yeah. he just he, he kind of breaks his character down. Yeah. And With just a couple of words. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's fantastic. It's a really good movie. Very subtle. Yeah. Uh, it's on Hulu, I think. It's super easy to find. So. Yeah, when so, you go to a Nicolas Cage movie, you, you expect, rightly or wrongly, a certain persona. Mm-hmm. Maybe his most mainstream is probably adaptation, where he's relatively normal. Even and that's, he's got and even that's not very mainstream. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, I mean, I'd probably say, like, National Treasure, one of those, like, high-concept yeah. movies, or <laughs> Con Air, you know, something like that. That's just, like... Action. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, if you get too well-known, can you still be called Fawcett? For instance, Terry Gilliam. Oh, yeah, because I think that sort of runs the gamut of... And I don't think Terry Gilliam ever really quite... I mean, he sort of touched the heights, but he never, like, quite got to the level that some of those other guys did. Even though I think his films are incredible. Well, um, oddly enough, with Gilliam, what he really became most famous for was making flops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think he's ever had it. The people who watch those movies, if they know Terry Gilliam's name at all, is for making that weird movie that made no money. Yeah. I mean, Time, Band- Time Bandits made no yeah. money, and it's great. Yeah. Brazil. Brazil made no money, and it's great. Um, I mean, he's... Baron Munchausen. Baron Munchausen. Baron Munchausen. Baron Munchausen is incredible. Like, the set design. Uh, Uma Thurman plays Venus, mm-hmm. and you're just like, oh, yeah, I get it. You know? Um, and it's, like, super charming, and the absurdist humor is there. And he loves his, like, over-the-top violence. Yeah. Um, he, just like absurd violence, you know, um, and so um, yeah. But I don't know that he ever really yeah. quite got I mean, to out, the outside of the community. The, probably the thing he's most famous for is the very the Fisher public King. Fisher fight. King. That's yeah. probably his closest. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, I think maybe because only Robin Williams was there. Yeah, Jeff Bridges, Popeye, and everything else. I thought, oh, I'll see what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean the fight he had with the studio for Brazil, mm-hmm. but, which involved taking out full page ads against him, is probably the thing he's most famous for outside well, of the And Man of La Mancha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which yeah, is incredible. Another that's another great um, that's another great uh, filmmaking documentary. Um, just like and um, Don Quixote actually ended up pretty good when it was released. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I thought this is pretty straightforward classic Gilliam style absurd you know I think he sort of nails all the the pieces um and Adam Driver super like charming in that movie is like a guy who just he he really wants to be Sancho Panza you know and like (laughs) he just keeps telling Don he's like this is not this is not real this is not real Don he's like what are you talking about this is not real you know that's the whole point of Don Quixote um but they bring it to like this modern era and they sort of work it into like filmmaking I love me a good movie about filmmaking <laughs> as well um, and so um, seeing La Mancha oh god it's been out for years and years 15 maybe or something because he tried to get it made right around the I think right around 2000 probably and it he had the test footage and it looked fun and it just sort of fell apart um, even though he had Johnny Depp at the time to be the main star and that's when Johnny was like white hot, you know, so still couldn't get it made, you know. And it made no money when it came out, so I understand why. <laughs> and they're just like, no, Terry, we can't keep giving you money like this. Um, and then there's a very personal one that he did called Tideland that's very good um, about um, a daughter dealing with 
her severely addicted father that's a little more personal, I guess. Yeah, I don't know the whole thing behind it, but that was what Terry said. He's like, this is my most personal film, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess that kind of makes sense since, you know, most of the stuff is very absurd and, you know, um, very highbrow, you know. Um, like his lowbrow stuff was the Monty Python stuff, you know. And that was still highbrow, you know. <laughs> highbrow, lowbrow, you know. <clears throat> Who else? Anybody? Questions? Um, so, I'm actually really excited to watch this Americathon. It's funny because this is something that can happen to anybody, right? You know, even the biggest people. So, like, a good example of this is uh, Big Lebowski that, you know, was largely not very popular when it came out. Um, they, did, they, they were like, what is this movie even about, right? You know, like, the Coens are... Um, pretty famous for, you know, not really caring so much about structure and, you know, and they love their absurdist stuff. Um, their absurd stuff is always the stuff that gets them in trouble. You know, um, the, what's the one with Tim Robbins and uh, Paul Newman? Uh, the Circle one. Uh, yeah. With, uh, you know, for Proxy. kids. Yeah, <laughs> um, what was it called? Hud Sucker Proxy. Hud Sucker Proxy. Another one where they're just, you know, and like, yeah, basically it's like a fast-talking 40s, you know, New York dame, you know, like the journalist, and it's like a total throwback to those, like, screwball comedies of the 30s and 40s that were great, where it just had that, you know, snap, 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 you know, um, like, something like um, His Girl Friday, where it's Cary Grant and, um, I'm forgetting her name right now, but I mean, that was like, at the time, it was the most dialogue ever in a movie, because they just never stopped <laughs> talking, um, and like, that's another one that's completely absurd and um, there's a lot of like really ugly behavior by like the the corporate people and uh, and I'm sure the studio is just like what do we do with this it actually be seen on a double bill with this the sweet smell of success the oh yeah because it's both about you know corruption and business and how how things get done it's like I say those those people who respect the law and like sausage to never watch either one being made. Yeah, yeah. kind of that. And Barton Fink from the Coen Brothers. Another one. Yeah. yeah. It's like the it's, dark it's, side of Hollywood. It's a great how, how thinking movie. How the machine machinery gets oiled. So and, and uh, John Goodman is so. Oh yeah. Oh, he's bad in that. He's bad. In he's one of our best actors. Well, and the cinematography is just amazing. Barton. Oh yeah. So th that this really isn't part of this particular panel, but not how not successful movies became classics. But we've been talking about pulp almost the entire panel. So is it possible to be successful, popular, and still a cult? I'm thinking Woody Allen. I'm thinking Mel, um, Mel Brooks. Yeah. yeah, I think so, because like, there's just a certain would subset. You count, would you count those as? as Probably, because like, there's a certain subset of people that those people really speak to. Um, that we'll always speak to, right? Um, like, um, and so. Um, well, I think a lot of a lot of people consider classic things classics because they have a nostalgia for them. It, it, it reminds them when they saw it and, and whatever. But when a new generation discovers something and finds it in like. Like like that 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 is divorced from nostalgic purposes, yep. mm -hmm. then then it's like right like. You know, and I think uh, Mel Brooks is that. Like his humor is like my kids th think he's funny. Like, Dad, have you seen this Mel Brooks movie? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, you could not make Blazing Saddles today. Yeah. You could so offensive on so many levels. Yeah, well, Young Frankenstein maybe, but again, I'm not sure. But yeah, Blazing Saddles were just a studio. Well, you not know, Young Frankenstein, that. another Broadway play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the producers. So. Yeah. Well, pretty. Yeah. I mean, how do you have a Comedy about making a, a musical called Springtime for Hitler <laughs> and have everybody love it. It's it's absurd. Especially when you're planning to do it in, in Germany at, at the height at the start of the war. Yeah, <laughs> uh, pretty amazing. But uh, actually, a lot of the spoof movies are are popular. It's called a Kill Bill and other ones which take the whole genre and make fun of it. Ooh, Kill Bill spoof movie. <laughs> Um, I mean, maybe a little bit for like the. I feel like it's more homage to like the 
the you know the uh, samurai movies mm-hmm. and the spaghetti westerns and stuff like that. Because um, I mean, Quentin Tarantino never saw something he didn't want to steal. So, <laughs> um, I, I've said for years that Quentin Tarantino is the biggest thief in the history of film, and nobody knows it because they're not up on the history of film. So it's like he just wait, 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 bigger than Lucas. Uh, I mean, I don't know, because like Lucas only did that one thing, really. You know? So <laughs> he like, just did one thing over and over and over yeah, again. Um, and Lucas, I'm a little more like, like the technology side of it. He did so much that I'm just like, I don't really care that they're just samurai movies, you know. Like that's all Star Wars is, is you know, Seven Samurai or Yojimbo or you know something like that. Hidden um, Fortress, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Hidden Fortress, yeah. Um, and so, um, but I mean, that's been happening for years. Yeah. Um, See, now I wouldn't actually say Lucas or Tarantino are thieves. Largely because they're so willing to talk about it, right? I mean, Tarantino I mean, they, will spend five times. He the length of yeah, the he doesn't deny it. What certainly. he's taking it from. Yeah. I mean, and and Lucas did the, the commentary track on the Criterion edition of Hidden Fortress. Yeah, he was straight up. Yeah, you're damn right. I ripped this movie off. Yeah, and let me tell you all about because there's even a basic. There's an interview mm-hmm. on on the Criterion. Well, that's actually a two part work where he just talks about the movie. And then a shorter one where he's like, "Yeah, this is this is C3PO. This is R2D2. Mm-hmm. This, you know. So you're not a thief if you say, "Yeah, I did." Right. It's an homage. It's yeah. an homage. It's a well, pastiche. Then, uh, That's what I was just telling you. Oh, 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 a reimagining. Yes, yes. <laughs> because because you know it, all art is additive. Oh yeah. Cinema right. is is even more additive than most yep. things, uh, except for music. So I mean, the fact that you said. Every shot that we take for granted in the movie now, at some point, somebody like pioneered that, and then everybody ripped it off. You know, Steadicam is probably the biggest one. You know, like Steadicam changed the whole way that every movie was made. You know, and the fluidity of the the camera. You know, like the Blur Witch effect on on watching a film. You have to have seasick pill before you can watch it. I did get a little queasy in uh, Blair Witch. Um, I, there's another one that I just saw that was like that recently. I'm trying to think what that was. But, um, yeah, um, I mean, that might be a good example of one that, like, probably started out as a cult and then, like, just exploded, you know, where it was just like... Um, a good example of that right now is, like, Terrifier 2, where they... They crowdsourced the whole thing. It's not studio at all. They were supposed to be in movie theaters for three days. And it's now week seven. They're still going. And it made $10 million. They're make, they've been in the top ten the entire time. It's unprecedented in like the history of film. I'm really hoping that that's like a, a turning point where um, we get a little more of that drive-in grindhouse feel. And some of these guys, that re- there's some really great exploitation directors out there right now. Um, that I think are just like exactly like David Lynch or John Waters or people like that that I think are deserve an opportunity to have an audience find them as well. And I'm hoping that that I'm hoping because like right now we're floundering. Cinema is floundering right now, um, and like largely everything that we do when we're programming is value added. Now you know that's how I pitch everything that I do. This is the value that I add, and this is the why you should pay more. This is why you should pay $15 to see a movie that is streaming somewhere right now. You come because I'm going to give you something, you know, some sort of insight or something like that. And we'll have a QA afterwards and we all can have like a conversation. And it's like a community, right? But like, so, yeah, I'm sorry. sorry go so ahead. we're running out of time. Oh, yeah, sorry. So why don't each one of us give one movie that either is a cult classic that you might or might not have seen? Or something that's like been out now that you think will be a cult classic in the future? So the best movie I've seen in the pandemic, um, I saw it at a film festival two and a half years ago. It's a movie called Dinner in America. It had it, it was having impossible problems with finding a distributor, be, largely because it's hard to classify, right? It's about two punk kids falling in love. It, I just watched this I never felt so seen in my entire life. Um, and uh, it's finally streaming on Hulu. And like uh, the director is a super nice guy. Um, been an indie director for years and years. Uh, I highly, highly recommend. It. It's spontaneous, also very easy to find. It's on Prime. It's on Hulu. Please watch that. That's I've been, you know, hyping that for like two years as well. So, sorry. 
Well, I've given plenty of recommendations during this hour, so I'm not going to make any new ones. I've given you and I'm going to be at another panel. So I'm oh, yeah, that's fair. Uh, mine is everything, everywhere, all at once. That was a huge hit, though. <laughs> was it? Yep. Oh, yeah. It was okay. top of the box office for like three weeks. Oh, wow. That was okay. one that, you know, like, it was the old school where word of mouth and it finally, like, caught yeah. on fire. So. I, um... I, you know, I, the only thing that this pops in my mind is it wasn't even released in theaters. It was one of HBO's original movies that they made back in the late 80s or early 90s. It's called Cast a Deadly Spell. Oh, yeah. Oh, with, um, where H.P. Lovecraft yeah. is like Fred a Fred Ward and yeah. Julian with the Lake Detective Fred Ward. Yeah. 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 I love that movie. Yeah. When they say in, in, in 1948, everyone practices magic and lost. Yeah. Thank you guys for coming out. Appreciate it so much. Thank you for listening to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. If you enjoyed our show, please check out D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition and Ragnarok and roll a Scion Hero to Ragnarok Story. Also, check out our Patreon page for more content and behind-the-scenes things, as well as joining us for a one-shot game or two.